This is Seeger Gray and Allison Markoski with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The GOP is asking for more time in responding to a lawsuit brought against Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban. The Evers administration filed the lawsuit in Dane County Court four days after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It asks, the, it asks the court to invalidate an 1849 ban on nearly all abortions, saying newer laws that restrict abortion access less should be applied instead. It comes as medical providers scramble for clarity on the legality of procedures without the protections of Roe. Now, legislative Republicans are asking for more time to respond to the lawsuit. While they had asked for an extension until mid-September, legislative Republicans must file a response by next Monday, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. It might be old news by now or lost in the Friday news dump, but in case you missed it, Former Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman was fired last Friday from his role as special counsel, formally ending his review of the 2020 presidential election. The investigation found no substantial election fraud. It did last 14 months and racked up more than $1 million of expenses to taxpayers. It also got caught up in legal disputes over the destruction of public records. The firing comes after Gableman and Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, who actually appointed Gableman to the role, publicly feuded in the wake of the August primary last week. Robin Voss narrowly won over Republican challenger Adam Steen, who was endorsed by Gableman. Democrats celebrated the end of the investigation. In a blog post, Madison Mayor Rhodes Conway characterized the, re- the review as a reign of error a fiasco, and threw another barb at Gableman by quoting Macbeth. The Campaign Committee for Republicans in the U.S. Senate is slashing its TV ad budget in Wisconsin and two other battleground states. That's the National Republican Senatorial Committee. They're cutting ad spending in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, three states with key Senate races in November. Ad reservations in Wisconsin markets, including in Madison and in Green Bay, have been cut by more than $2 million, reports the New York Times. On the lighter side, an historic milestone in Wisconsin bird news from this past weekend. A brown booby has landed in Wisconsin, reports Channel 3000. It's the first known occurrence of this kind of seabird landing in the state. The booby is thousands of miles away from home. It's normally found in tropical climates. But its apparent lack of navigation has driven bird watchers together. Lower speed limits on a portion of John Nolan Drive went into effect today. About a mile from North Shore Drive to East Lakeside Street is being cut from 45 to 35 miles per hour. The change is part of a city initiative to reduce traffic deaths and severe injuries on city streets. The plan, called Vision Zero, hopes to eliminate all traffic deaths and severe injuries on city streets by 2035. Speed limit reductions are also coming to other streets later this year on portions of Mineral Point Road, Old Sock Road, Portage Road, and Sego Road. An Eastside church could be demolished after its congregation merged with another site a year ago, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Threshold Development of Madison, which owns property next door to the Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church, is proposing to demolish the mid-century style church for a housing redevelopment. 
The new site would offer 32 apartments as well as dozens of underground parking spaces. Meanwhile, the congregation lives on. Worshippers merged spaces with the Moravian Community Church last summer. Three new electric buses owned by the city of Madison have been struggling to get off, or rather, on the ground, reports the Capital Times in a new investigation. Two summers ago, in 2020, the city received its first electric buses as part of a federal grant. But they're still sitting in a warehouse, stalled after they were racked by a need for various fixes. Those fixes ranged from steering column issues to a 10-month-long project to retrofit the buses for accessibility. Finally, the three electric buses could be hitting the streets later this month or in September. And now, on to today's top stories. Congress has advanced the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Supporters of the bill say it covers a lot of ground, including provisions designed to make prescription drugs more affordable for older Americans. A Wisconsin nonprofit says the changes are long overdue. Mike Moen of the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Sweeping legislation approved by Congress is designed to address a range of issues, including climate change and deficit reductions. Other components tackle skyrocketing medication costs, and Wisconsin advocates say older residents will see benefits. The Inflation Reduction Act, which cleared its final congressional hurdle last week, allows Medicare to negotiate for prescription drug prices while capping out-of-pocket medication costs for beneficiaries at $2,000 annually. Lisa Lampkins of AARP Wisconsin says it will bring relief to individuals around the state. We hear every day stories from our members about the measures that they are taking to try to stay alive when they cannot afford the cost of their drugs. Folks who skip doses or cut their pills in half. She says it's important to know this can help with drugs seniors take on a long-term basis to address chronic health conditions. The provision saw heavy resistance from pharmaceutical industry groups who argue it will result in unintended consequences such as a decline in drug innovation. But Lampkins contends the industry is focusing on maintaining the status quo while noting the concerns about innovation are overblown. The Congressional Budget Office, and they're the sort of nonpartisan scorekeeper of legislation, has estimated that only two fewer drugs out of an estimated 400 drugs that would come out over the market in the next 10 years, there would only be two less drugs. Some elements will take effect next year, including caps on insulin copays for Medicare recipients, as well as no-cost vaccines for certain diseases. Other provisions will be phased in or need to be sorted out in the next few years. Either way, Lamkins feels like advocates have taken a major step. For the first time, we are actually on the cusp of delivering real relief to people. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. now 6.15 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news here on WORT. (laughs) 
Supervisors on the Dane County Board are proposing an alternative path forward for the Dane County Jail amid several rounds of increasing costs this year. This time, the Dane County Board's Black Caucus is putting forth a plan to reduce the capacity of the new jail, which has yet to be built and yet to be fully decided on. As part of the plan, the Black Caucus is also putting forth more reforms to reduce the jail population, some of which have been in the works for a very long time. Proponents say the proposal would cut costs and bring the project back on budget, which circumvents a need for the board to agree to bump funding for the project again. As supervisors are set to consider the resolution this Thursday, WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout spoke with supervisor April Kagea, a member of the Black Caucus, last Friday. So, April, I know we spoke a little bit about this in the past here, but I really want to dig into uh, what you're calling for in regards to the county's criminal justice system. Uh, Your new plan is calling for a smaller jail, which would be possible under uh, certain reforms. Do I sort of have that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We believe that if these reforms are put in place, it will reduce our jail population. Um, and also reduce the uh, disparities and inequities that are currently um, in the jail with the folks that are being arrested. And now, before we get into some of these reforms, you said the disparities that are in the jail right now. Can you sort of break that down for me a little bit? What what do those disparities look like? Sure. So right now we have double the national average of um, African-American folks in jail, Um which is, you know, ridiculous. Um, And so if that number was brought down drastically, we would have under 200. It would actually reduce the jail population by 200 if we just brought just that one disparity down. Now, granted, um, we would also need to look at why folks are in there, right? Like we're not for just releasing folks. Um, People have commented that, you know, we just want to release criminals to the street. That's not at all what we want to do. We're focused on nonviolent offenders. We're focused on folks who are in there as a result of not being able to afford to pay their cash bail, um, who are also in there waiting for their um, pretrial and, and to be adjudicated in the system. And so now let's get into some of these reforms. What are you all calling for? Can you sort of break down for me the different things that you're calling for? Sure. So we have about seven things. So uh, the first thing is to, we would like to have an 18-month pilot weekend court, which would be held virtually. Um, And then we would like that pilot court to include analysis of both the average daily population and the racial impact. So if we hold a weekend court, that gets folks out of jail that are just sitting there on the weekends because they can simply cannot afford to pay cash bail. So let's say someone was arrested on the weekend for drinking, um, they're not violent to themselves or to others, but are not going to be able to get out until the following Monday or Tuesday. Um, we need, we want to be able to have a process to get them out on the weekend. Um, another one is, so that's separate. I should, I should note that's separate. The weekend court is separate from the cash bail folks. So the weekend court, just to clarify, sorry. Um, the weekend court is just to get folks out that have been put in there over the weekend um, that are just sitting there waiting for um, a hearing the following Monday or Tuesday. So that's one. Um, then to look at um, the look at nonviolent misdemeanor um, charges for folks that are sitting there um, on cash bail, um, so that you know even if the charge is nonviolent, just we need to make sure that um, we urge the commissioners to review how cash bail is used with the objective of of reducing its use. 
Um, and also would like to have the court commissioners account for racial disparities and how cash bail is used going forward because there are some disparities in there. So, for example, if there's an affluent um, offender who is in jail and gets a cash bail of, of $500, they're, because they have the financial means, they're able to get out of jail. But if there's someone who does not have that um, that ability to pay that $500, they're going to sit there. So those disparities is um, one that we're referring to. Um, also, we would like to um, have law enforcement agencies throughout the county not arrest those reporting crimes if they themselves have a nonviolent uh, arrest warrant. So this has happened with sexual assault victims. They go in to report a crime, they're sexually assaulted, but because they have um, an outstanding nonviolent arrest warrant, they then themselves are arrested. Um, so that does two things. One, puts someone in jail who's just suffered um, a sexual assault, and then two, puts them in jail for something that's nonviolent um, that could be dealt with in a different way. Um, and then another thing um, is just to have the public defender courts and sheriffs um, kind of use the population review panel to, to reduce the length of stay and move people out of jail as quickly as possible. There are some folks sitting in there, you know, like I said, waiting on trial for maybe 14, 21 month, days, also, you know, three or four months. We want this population review panel that's already in place to actually review to see are those people, are there people sitting in there um, just literally just waiting for trial, not because, again, they're violent or not because, you know, some other reason that can be um, taken out and, and wait for those, wait for that trial, um, you know, like at home or something. And then also another thing um, that we want to do is to um, have the sheriff limit the number of federal prisoners held in the facility to 10%, so no more than 10% of the jail population. Um, from the meeting last night, um, the sheriff indicated that we are not holding any um, above 10%, which is great. But we just want to put a cap on that because in the past numbers last month indicated that it was at 12 percent. So we're just kind of putting that placeholder in there just so that, you know, we can make sure that we don't have any more than 10 percent of the jail population be federal prisoners. And then also we want um, the sheriff and parole agents to limit probation and parole holds by booking and releasing. Unless, of course, there's an extraordinary circumstance um, where the holds need to be used and then also limit them to seven days without a charge. So. Right now, there's folks in jail um, for over seven days that do not have charges. Our reform calls for if there's no charge and it's been seven days, they should be released at that point because if there's no charge, then why are they sitting in there? Um, and then the final thing is just to request the juvenile court administrator to work with the courts um, to reduce incarceration of youthful offenders by identifying an alternative uh, diversion programs and services. And those are programs and services that will that we'll work with that are already existing, as well as hoping to be able to um, produce funding to create some other programs to um, help those juvenile offenders. All right. So that's seven different reforms that you're calling for there. And now these reforms, correct me if I'm wrong, but these would just sort of be official recommendations to the criminal justice system, correct? Uh, why Why is that? Why not just create a resolution, you know, concretely implementing some of these reforms? Well, because Dane County, we don't have the authority to demand the creation of programs. We can give money to programs. We can request partnerships with other um, entities to to um, provide services, but but we don't have the authority to demand them. So, like, there's we literally cannot do that within our power. So, we're putting these in place, putting these forth in our resolution, so that then if these things are established, we've already begun talking to some of our partners. 
so that then if this resolution gets passed, then we can take the next step. Because granted, this is just step one, and that's a misnomer I think that a lot of people um, don't understand is that we have to do things um, step by step. Like we can't put the cart before the horse. This is the first step in creating all of these things. So once this is passed, hopefully um, on the 18th at the, the county board meeting, then we can work to start um, either funding initial, like I said, programs that are already in place or creating those programs to help um, implement these these resolutions or these reforms, I mean. And so now this plan uh, here, it has not been without its critics. Most notably, I know Dane County <laughs> Sheriff uh, Kelvin Barrett came out uh, just recently against the plan, uh, specifically pointing to the smaller jail. Sort of want to mm-hmm. talk with you a little bit about that. You said that you spoke with him uh, yesterday. Uh, so what are you, sort of your thoughts on the critics that have been uh, talking about your plan? Yeah, so he was at the meeting yesterday that we had um, with, it was a joint meeting with Public Works and public judiciary and protection and uh, protection for the county board um, and the critics. So we're hearing a lot of things, right? So there are some critics, including some of our county board um, colleagues that are going to say no regardless because they don't want a new jail. They don't want any money put towards a new jail. So that's number one. Um, my response to that is I agree we shouldn't have to build a new jail. However, the one that is currently in place is inhumane and it's disgusting and it's not um an environment where anyone should be living. So it does need to be rebuilt. Um, other critics that we have talk about, you know, it's, it's our scope is too small. We're making it too small. Population is growing. We need to build a bigger jail. And our argument again is, look, just because the population is growing doesn't mean we need to build a jail to match that. We need to look, the disparities are already like ridiculously large, right? So if, the notion that we're going to build a bigger jail than max the growing population is then essentially saying we're okay with the disparities and how people are being arrested and the fact that so many folks are in jail that we're going to keep arresting at that rate. Our, our argument is the complete opposite. We need to put these reforms in place, and um, which in turn will reduce the number of folks that are being um, arrested. Other critics have been um, in regards to medical services because our um, resolution calls for um, kind of reducing the medical beds that are in um, the, I guess, the current plan right now. Um, because what we're saying is if we revise the fourth floor to remove all acute medical housing, we'll, provide, we'll be able to use that space to provide general population instead of um, building another floor for general population. Because at the end of the day, if someone is very, very sick and they need that type of care, they should be going to the hospital. We have, you know, UW Hospital, Meritor. We have great hospitals in the city that should be used for that care instead of the jail. So those are kind of a few of the, the critics that are the critiques that we've received. Um, and, but that's, I mean, that's natural, right? Like with every resolution, there's generally some folks that are against it. Um, but at the end of the day, we want people to know that it's not just about the number people focus too much on 725, the number of people we're actually impacting. We're talking about, people's lives, these inmates that are in jail, their families that are affected, loss of work, loss of money, all of these things can be fixed while we also reduce our jail population. All right now, April, we're running up against the clock here. Uh, Do you have just any final thoughts of anything that you'd like to uh, share with me here? Um, Just that there are folks that are interested in um, hearing more about our resolution or reading it in full, feel free to go to our our caucus website, um, and also um, that website is dangcountyblackcaucus.org. 
Um, we also have a list of FAQs on that website, um, some questions that folks ask um, that we have answers to. And then please, um, we would love to hear from the community what your thoughts are. You can register to come to the board meeting on August 18th, where we will be debating this with our colleagues, and also we welcome public comment. We would love to hear both sides um, so that we can get everyone engaged in this process. I've been talking with April Kigea, Dane County Supervisor and member of the Dane County Black Caucus, about the set of criminal justice reforms the caucus recently proposed to the Dane County Board. Uh, Like April said, you can find more information on these reforms over at DaneCountyBlackCaucus.org. April, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. Thank you so much. Well, it's Monday, and that means Brenda Conkle hops on the Zoom to break down all the meetings happening this week around Madison and Dane County. This week, the jail looms large amid many items in this week's Forward Lookout. It's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle of ForwardLookout.com for what's happening this week in local government. Brenda, instead of Dylan, you get me this week because it's moving time. It is hippie Christmas. (laughs) I thought you sounded a little funny, Dylan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Well, looking ahead at uh, what's happening this week, let's start at the county level. And we'll start with today. This morning, the Board of Canvassers met to kind of confirm some votes. Yep, they are meeting this morning, and then they're also meeting again on Wednesday if they don't get completed. They This is where they go through and make sure everybody's ballots are, are correct, and then they certify uh, the results to the county clerk. So they go through everything from governor down to the clerk of circuit court. So that could take a little while. We've learned a lot about certification in the last couple of years, so there we go. <laughs> Ongoing tonight, by the time this airs, 5.30, the Personnel and Finance Committee is meeting. Yeah, they have uh, the financial audit from Baker Tilly. Um, You know, always good to just check in and how everything is doing. They do have a few other things of interest. They have the park and ride grants, which are um, grants for bike trails. They also have increasing staff for uh, Dane County Public Health to expand sexual and reproductive health services. So that is um, interesting. They have their new um, executive director of the Alliant Energy Center. His name is Adam Heffron. Um, And then they are also... Looking, I love the names of these resolutions, but realizing key goals of the Dane County Jail Project within currently authorized funding. So Dane County Jail vote is up tonight in front of personnel and finance, as well as they're looking at a capital budget amendment for um, secure county elections facility. Kind of goes along with the first item. Also tonight at 530 ongoing right now, the City County Homeless Issues Committee of note on that is the Homeless Bill of Rights. Yeah, so there's a homeless bill of rights that's been proposed by the homeless union. A lot of the rights are probably already there, but it's always good to have a bill of rights that sort of brings it all together and people can point to it and say, no, I know this is my right. They also have the Youth Homeless Demonstration Project, which is about $2 million that's coming in from the federal government to work on homeless youth um, issues. So that's good. Then they'll get their their usual updates about the men's shelter and COVID-19. Um, all right, moving on to Wednesday at 5.30, the Youth Commission. They're um, going to do a review of their presentation to the Health and Human Needs Committee. Um, they did that, I believe, last month. And then they're also planning for their work for 2024 and looking at what they're going to be doing next month. And Thursday, it's a big day, uh, 5.30, the Executive Committee meets. Um, I don't know if you want to point out anything there before we get to the county board. 
Um, yeah, they're looking at fentanyl testing strips, making them available to residents in Dane County um, to uh, prevent opioid deaths. Um, they're also then looking at that secure elections facility for, for elections. And then they are also getting the final report that they did about election security. Okay. For those fentanyl strips, those were just decriminalized earlier this spring. So that's probably why they're moving along now, right? They were in fentanyls and everything now, all, you know, all kinds of drugs. So mm. it's not just in opioids anymore. So it's important to use those. Yeah, I think those are already ongoing at a community pharmacy, but good to see yep. investment there. Um, all right, 7 p.m., the county board. It's going to be a big one. Yeah, they have a lot of things on their agenda. Um, I didn't even list them all in my blog. I kind of shortcut it said, and other routine items. So they were, again, they're going to be realizing the key goals for the Dane County Jail Project. So they'll be looking at that as well as a change order for the jail. So be interesting to see once what they what they have to say there. Is the key goals uh, proposed by the um, Black Caucus on the Dane County Board? Yes, that is the one. Yep. Okay. And then and then there's the amendment that's asking for more money for the jail. Got it. Yep. All right. Well, but, sorting through here, there's a lot more on here. Yeah, there there's a um they're going to be authorizing all their borrowing for the next year for so that's um they're looking to exceed the 10 million dollars. So um they are also looking at a referendum question for that. Um and then they are also looking at Several roads that they're going to be coordinating with uh, various other uh, municipalities. And they have a new contract for outreach services. They also have that park and ride grant, the uh, executive director of the Lion Energy Center. Uh, a couple of those uh, policing grants you might want to take a look at. And then they are also going to be looking at that same resolution to increase staff over at public health to expand sexual and reproductive health services. So um, lots, lots, of, lots of stuff on their agenda. Not sure how much we'll talk about it besides the jail. On the city level, today at Already Met at 4 p.m., Facilities, Programs, and Fees Subcommittee for the Parks Division. Yeah, they um, they finally put the word parks in there so you could figure out what they were a subcommittee of, so that's helpful. <laughs> um, but they're going to be looking at raising parks fees um, and also looking at having some sort of a discount program. And then they're also going to be looking at a request from Capital Off-Road Pathfinders to use various parks for practices one day through October. So they'll, they'll be going around from park to park and exploring those. Okay, 5 p.m., Transportation Policy and Planning Board virtual, as of course all of these meetings are, I should mention. Almost all of them, right? Yeah, almost all of them. I think there's a couple. Um, the Board of Review still has been meeting in person, and there might be some over at the Menorah Terrace that are in person, but almost all of them are virtual. Okay. Um, Transportation Policy and Planning Board, they got two, two big items on their agenda, two things they've been working on for quite some time. One is complete green streets, trying to um, make our streets more friendly to the environment, and then also uh, transportation demand management plans. Um, and those are for employers to try to figure out how to get employees to drive to work less, which, you know, the pandemic helped a lot, but still people are out there in their cars driving when they could be taking buses or other public transportation. Going to tomorrow, Tuesday at 4.30 p.m., the Habitat Stewardship Subcommittee of the Parks Division. Uh, they have some interesting stuff going on. Organic Turf Program? Yeah, they have their Organic Turf Program as well as their Managed Meadows. So um, I'm curious where their Organic Turf is going to go, <laughs> but <laughs> I did not open that one up and look at it. It's going to go um, They're also going to be talking about their five-year review of the Parks Land Management Plan. 
Um, so managing the different areas of the parks. And often that has to do with mowing and maybe goats or other things like that. Mm. Wednesday at 4.30 p.m., Board of Public Works. They have a lot of routine things on their agenda. Um, and one that might be of interest in is for the BRT, the transportation project plat numbers for the east-west bus rapid transit. So they are looking at how they're going to acquire the land to be able to do the bus rapid transit. So that one is probably one that interests a lot of folks. Most of the other stuff is pretty routine. I'm not sure. You probably just want to take a look and see if you might be interested in something. I'm a big fan of this presentation by the Wisconsin Concrete Pavement Association regarding reduced carbon in concrete. I skipped over that one, but they um, have some of these concrete pads that they actually put under the shelters out at Dairy Drive where they have those, the, the pallet shelters for homeless folks. So they're starting to do it and see once they're sort of testing it out, see how it's going to work. Thursday, there are a bunch of meetings. Um, at five o'clock, the Landlord and Tenant Issues Committee will be meeting. They're mostly looking at um, changes to the building code to add protections for complaints when, when tenants will complain about things um, for their landlords. They're also looking at manu- manufactured home lot rentals. Um, So those are the two things they'll be looking at there. Okay, landlords, tenants, that takes us back to moving and right where we started. And uh, and that's it. You can check all of this out at forwardlookout.com. Brenda Conkle has been speaking with us, giving us the week ahead. Thank you so much, Brenda. Thanks, Shelley. On this day in 1961, the NAACP branch in Monroe, North Carolina, presented a 10-point program for racial equality to their city council. Robert F. Williams was the main presenter. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has this story on today's edition of that of The Past Isn't Past. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Today, August 15th, marks the day in 1961, that a local NAACP chapter in Monroe, North Carolina, presented a 10-point program for racial equality to the town alderman. Faced with massive racist violence occurring with police collusion, many African-American residents took up arms to defend themselves. One of them was Marine Corps veteran and local NAACP head Robert Williams. Williams set up a local National Rifle Association club called the Black Armed Guard, which defended the local black community against the Ku Klux Klan attacks. He was falsely accused of kidnapping by the FBI, which forced him and his wife Mabel to flee to Cuba in 1961. In Cuba, he hosted a radical radio show broadcast to African Americans in the U.S. South called Radio Dixie. In 1965, he and his wife relocated again, this time to China. He returned to the U.S. in 1969 and was immediately arrested but in 1975, all charges were dropped. When he died in 1996, legendary civil rights leader Rosa Parks delivered the eulogy at his funeral, where she paid testament to his courage and his commitment to freedom, adding, what he did should go down in history and never be forgotten. The 10 points presented on August 15th covered the traditional demands like the removal of all signs in the city designating one area for colored and another for whites a new pool in the African-American part of town, and desegregation of the schools. But the demands for equal employment rights were the most important, said Williams. Out of the 3,000 African-Americans in town, 
1,000 were unemployed, unable to get even menial jobs. Those who could get work earned at most $15 for a six-day week. One of the few jobs available was picking cotton, which paid $2.50 for 100 pounds of picked cotton. All the black youth that finished high school and college had to leave Monroe to find employment. For reasons such as these, we believe that the basic ill is an economic ill, being denied the right to have a decent standard of living, Williams wrote in his book, Negroes with Guns. Like many black people who served in World War II, Williams and his allies joined the NAACP in droves to fight white supremacy at home as they had fought the Nazis overseas. Williams joined the Great Migration North for a better job, but after an unsuccessful stint in the systemically racist Marines, returned to Monroe in 1955 and joined the small NAACP chapter there. He persuaded other vets to join him who had stood against the Klan. First, they successfully integrated the local library. Then, in 1957, Williams led the successful struggle to integrate the local public pool. Their picket line was fired on. No one was punished, although police were present. At that time, Monroe had a press-estimated Klan membership of 7,500 in a town that totaled 12,000 residents. So Williams applied for an NRA chapter and formed the Black Armed Guard, which soon had about 60 members, including some vets. They were determined to protect the black community against attacks by the Klan. After the 10 points were given to the city on August 15th, a group of Freedom Riders came to town and with local radicalized youth pledged to nonviolently win these goals. Pickets marched daily at the courthouse, but on the third day, townspeople started insulting the picketers and police beat up a picketer. Over the next several days, picketers were beaten up and arrested. Tensions mounted, culminating in a violent attack on the black section of town. So the black people took up arms, joining the self-defense guard. That night, Williams received a call from the chief of police, whose voice he recognized, who told him, I had caused a lot of trouble and that state troopers were coming and that in 30 minutes... I would be hanging from the courthouse square. I saw police cars blocking off the block in which we lived. I told my wife that we had to leave with the children right away and that we didn't have time to get any clothing or anything. They escaped down an alleyway and eventually reached New York. There they learned the FBI wanted him for kidnapping a Klansman and his wife who had been given refuge in Williams' home during the violence. Williams felt he had no choice but to flee the country. Williams was arrested upon his return to the U.S., but the charges were dropped. Williams died a free man on October 15, 1996. Rosa Parks delivered the eulogy. She said she was delighted to find herself at the funeral of a black leader who had died peacefully in his bed. She said those that marched with King in Alabama had always admired his courage and his commitment to freedom. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson. The time is now 647 and you're listening to the live local news here on WORT. Earlier this month, WORT science contributor Patrick Seibel headed to the Longenecker Horticultural Gardens for a guided tour. His guide was curator David Stevens. In this excerpt of their hour-long conversation, Stevens kicks off the tour with a history of how the gardens came to be and brings us a history of one of its first collections. Well, we're, we're here at the gate of the Longenecker Horticultural Gardens. 
Should we start the tour? We should indeed. So uh, the Longnecker Horticultural Gardens, kind of a clunky uh, name there, uh, sometimes hard to pronounce. Why that? It's actually uh, to differentiate it from the other 1,200 acres here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Arboretum, which are uh, composed of native plants. So plants that were here uh, in Dane County at the time of European uh, settlement. That's really uh, how we differentiate native from not native. We know a lot of those uh, things though may have been moved, assisted migration is what that's called, by Native Americans or certainly by, by animals and moved into the area. In any case, the Longenecker Horticultural Gardens is truly the Arboretum's Arboretum, the collection of woody plants from not only uh, our state but from around the world that are hardy in our climate. The name Longenecker is derived from the original curator, Bill Longenecker, who started here at the inception of the Arboretum and was both the director of the Arboretum and uh, the garden's first curator. Bill was a professor of horticulture here at UW uh, and then would become the first director of the landscape architecture department here as well. At his retirement in 1966-67, the gardens were dedicated to him as a lasting legacy of his contribution here. Well, let's go in through the main archway off of our visitor center parking lot. And the first thing we see here are lilacs. Uh, lilacs were the first uh, specimens planted dating back to April 19, 1935. At that point, lilacs were still all the rage. Uh, there were still new species being discovered uh, in Asia, primarily in China and some uh, in Japan and Korea as well. Uh, Longenecker set out to create one of the largest collections of lilacs uh, in the country, uh, and he succeeded. We still have one of the largest collections in North America, and we have many cultivars or selections here uh, that are not found elsewhere. We are either the only collection or public collection at least or one of just a handful that have some of these. So let's walk on in and see what Bill was trying to create at that time. Are lilacs uh, indigenous here? Or you mentioned that there's some Asian species. Yeah, the lilac that we know is the common lilac and that's the uh, Syringa of all garris. And, uh, there is some reasons to believe that it actually uh, first came uh, to North America on the Mayflower. Uh, it's a long story and I'd be happy to talk to you about that at a different time, but that might take our entire hour here. In any case, we know that lilacs were very common in the colonies shortly within uh, 10 to 20 years of the pilgrims arriving. So why not native, uh, it is really a beloved plant in the colder areas of North America. Um, so lilacs really, you know, for us in Wisconsin uh, are kind of the harbinger of spring. Uh, you know, they uh, are able to make it through our harsh winters and then have those uh, profuse blooms that are so fragrant first thing in the spring and allow us to know that we made it through another winter. Even though they're not native, they're actually uh, the state uh, flower, believe it or not, of New Hampshire. Uh, so what most of us know are that common lilac, but there are many other species. And as I mentioned, many of, most of those are from Asia, 
Uh, the common lilac uh, is one of two species known to um, Europe. It's native to the Balkan uh, region of Europe, although it was first discovered, believe it or not, uh, in Turkey. But that's uh, another story as well. So as we move into the lilac collection, what we see are rooms. So if we went back to 1935, the Arboretum was a clean slate. All the trees had been taken out uh, and the landscape was, was, was really wide open as people tried to farm it. That was not uh, very profitable. If you've been to the Arboretum, you know most of our land is quite wet. Uh, so folks did fail at that. So what Bill was trying to do in 1935 with our lilac collection was to break up that wide open landscape and create intimate rooms. And then he has hallways between those rooms to get people uh, more of a sense of closure and, and, and beauty around them instead of these windswept open areas that were often bare uh, and, and you would have blowing soil and things of that nature. Uh, again, remember this is, is, is the beginning of uh, or, or during the Depression at that time. We were lucky enough too to have 250 men, there was only men at that point, stationed here as part of the Civilian Conservation Corps part of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal to get folks back uh, to work. So the lilacs are planted in beds that were hand dug by those CCC members back in the 30s. And they also did the original planting. And if you can imagine them watering all of these plants with 55 gallon drums of water on the back of a flatbed. So we really owe a huge uh, amount of uh, gratitude to those folks. Uh, for doing that and really if you've been to any state or national park uh, you know from Yosemite to Glacier it was really CCC members uh, who created all of the walkways stonework uh, and a lot of the infrastructure we know today. Well, that's uh, that's really interesting that it was right here in Madison as well if you think of Devil's Lake. You do. Devil's Lake State Park has got that uh, the CCC trails there. Yes, yes. So they, so we too uh, benefited from those CCC uh, uh, folks. Many of them who were quite skilled, as I mentioned, the stone walls. Obviously, you needed a mason who knew how to do that. Uh, it wasn't just somebody who who just uh, ambled about uh, and, and and threw some bricks together. Uh, so if if you come out, uh, we've still got some of of the original CCC buildings. Actually, we're just finishing up the redo of, of one of the remaining barracks here uh, as well. So uh, quite a history. That was Perpetual Notion Machine host Patrick Seibel on site at the Longenecker Horticultural Gardens in conversation with curator David Stevens. You can find their full conversation online at wortfm.org and on the Perpetual Notion Machine podcast. Today on the Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson takes a look at two new action-adventure movies on the small screen. The Nice Guys, a mediocre detective buddy comedy set in 1977, and Day Shift, a vampire comedy with Jamie Foxx and Snoop Dogg. You're a private investigator? My profession is very complicated, okay? It's nuanced. That is a lot of, that's a lot of blood.
That was a clip from the trailer for The Nice Guys, a new buddy detective movie set on the seamy side of Los Angeles, 1977. It was directed and co-written by Shane Black, a veteran writer-director, probably best known for another L.A. action story, Kiss Kiss, Bang Bang, and as the screenwriter for Lethal Weapon. Sadly, though the film looks good, with great period music and great cars, it's ultimately disappointing. The plot is convoluted and just isn't as fun as it should be. The movie was almost two hours, but would have been better with tighter editing, say down to 90 minutes. The ending is predictable and anticlimactic. We can't blame Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling, who play well off each other and are clearly having a great time. Crowe plays Jackson Healy, a low-level enforcer for hire. That's how he meets a down-on-his-luck private detective, Holland March. Ryan Gosling, who has run afoul of one of Haley's clients. Haley, however, is not really happy with his work and would rather be a detective. After Haley breaks March's wrist, he offers him a job, help find a missing young woman, Amelia, Margaret Quayley. Soon, a lot of people are trying to find Amelia, including a seemingly confused elderly woman who also hires March to find Amelia, her niece. Eventually, March, who is not challenged by ethical concerns, has several people paying him to find Amelia as the bodies pile up. This sounds grim, but it actually leads to a number of hysterical scenes like the one where March and Healy go to a party and a semi-drunk March takes a tumble and finds a dead body. March's 13-year-old daughter, Holly, well played by first-time actor Angaree Rice, seems to be the smartest one of the bunch. Sadly, one of the movie's disturbing tendencies is how it casually endangers children. The movie clearly sets us up for a sequel, but I'm not interested, although I really found the pairing of Crow and Gosling to be inspired. Gosling, in particular, wasn't afraid to risk looking foolish, and Crow also plays against type. Hopefully, they will get a chance to play opposite each other in a much better movie. Now, for another film set in Los Angeles. This one's set in the present day. Vampire hunting is a business. Cut necks and cash your checks. Well, things have changed since you got your ass kicked out the union. I don't come up with 10K. My wife and my daughter are going to move to Florida. Hi, Dad. That was a clip from the trailer for Day Shift, directed by veteran stuntman J.J. Perry. This was written by Shay Hatton and Tyler Tice. This is a fun action-adventure comedy vampire movie that plays close to the style of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but it depends on too many cheap jokes. Day Shift has great special effects and fine fight scenes, and a pretty good cast led by Jamie Foxx and Snoop Dogg. Jamie Foxx plays Bud Jablowski, a down-on-his-luck blue-collar guy working in L.A. as a pool cleaner. He needs to pick up some quick cash, or his ex, a largely wasted Megan Good, will move with their daughter to Florida. Fortunately, Bud is really a vampire slayer. Unfortunately, he's been kicked out of his uptight, rule-bound Slayers Union. The Union is really more like an old-fashioned guild, but is proficient at his real job, as we see in a fun opening scene. To make real money, though, he needs to get back in the Union, so Bud contacts his old friend Tex, played by Snoop Dogg, a star vampire slayer who helps negotiate his comeback with a reluctant Union head, Ralph Eric Lang. But Ralph saddles Bud with a minder, a bland office worker, Seth Dave Franco. Bud objects, but he has no choice. Seth is the unfortunate victim of much of the movie's potty humor. But the point of the movie is the action. In one especially effective sequence, two stylish vampire slayers, the Nazarene brothers, played in an exceptional cameo by Scott Atkinson, 
and Steve Howie help Bud and a reluctant Seth invade a vampire house in the San Fernando Valley. As with all L.A. movies, it's really about real estate. The real villain is an evil real estate developer, Audrey San Fernando, played by Carla Souza who just happens to be a vampire. She's hashed a plot for vampires to take over the valley. Unfortunately, Bud has inadvertently incurred her wrath, which leads to more cool fight scenes and one exceptional car, or should I say, truck chase. The stunt team, led by stunt coordinators Troy Robinson and Justin Yu, and fight coordinators Felix Bentecourt and Michael Lair, deserve praise. All in all, a pretty good action-adventure comedy vampire movie but it could have been much better with a better developed script. Both movies are streaming on Netflix. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your interviewer was Nate Wiggehaupt. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda, Brenda Conkle, and Patrick Seibel, and to Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, and news director Sholly Pittman produced today's show. I'm your host, Seeker Gray. And I'm your host, Allison Markowski. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.